I'm not going to survive this 24 hour race. So you did 10 classes in one day. I did. And I made sure or or that heart rate monitor to make sure everyone saw that I was maxing out. Noah Galloway. Welcome to the orange therapy podcast. How's it going? It's going good. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Um, so you told us, uh, we know that you're actually in Alabama. Whereabouts are you in that great state? Uh, I'm about just, you know, 30, 40 minutes south of Birmingham, right in the middle. I'm dead center of the state. <laughs> and is, uh, is that like your original hometown or are you from a different part of the state? No, I'm actually from Birmingham and then joined the military. And then when I moved back, I ended up a little further south where I am now. So this is this is new territory to me. Got it. Um, and I got to ask, because half of my family is uh, in Alabama, so I have to ask Roll Tide or War Eagle. <laughs> well, you know, I am I am an Alabama fan, but I'm not a diehard fan. Like I didn't get upset when we lost to Auburn or to LSU. I was like, well, that sucks, and then went on about my day. So you, got, <laughs> so, you got other things to do that day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, gotcha. Uh, so uh, can you give us a little bit of background? I know you started telling us about the hometown and you went into the military. Um, but I would love to, you know, you've got over 200,000 followers on, on Instagram. You've done a lot of motivational speaking and, uh, maybe you can educate our, our, us and our audience on, um, you know, how you, how, how you've led to that career. Well, you know, so like I said, I grew up in Birmingham and then I ended up going to college at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, UAB. And my first semester, I was about 20 years old when I decided to get in college. And my first semester was in 2001. And 9-11 happened. And I watched all that unfold on television like everyone else. And I never went back to class. I was like, I'm going in the military. Uh, you know, because I, you know, I thought about it. I was 20 years old, physically fit, and loved my country. So I went in. I have an uncle that was a Vietnam veteran, paratrooper in Vietnam. He always told me if I went in to go airborne infantry, so I'd be right up front. So that's what I did and ended up the 101st out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And our division commander was General Petraeus. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was in the – so he designed the way that the military invaded Iraq. And we were one of those lead elements that did that. And once we hit Iraq, I mean – I always tell people politics aside, whether we should or should have been there, I don't know. But I, I served with some men that we just did what was told, and I enjoyed my job. But when we were in Iraq, I loved working with the locals, and you know, I loved everything about it. So that's when I was like, this is what I'm doing for a career. And I, I absolutely loved that first deployment to Iraq. And my second deployment in 2005 was – No, let me, let me interrupt you. I want to go back to the second deployment, but I really want to understand. Um, cause I remember, you know, we all remember where we were when nine 11 happened. You said you were at UAB. Like, were you literally on campus? Were you in class home? Well, actually situation. So I didn't have class that morning. So I slept in and I remember getting a phone call from a friend of mine, uh, Justin, who called me and said, turn on the TV. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was all he said. I just turned it on and the one twin tower was already burning and all the newscasters were talking about pilot error. And I watched 
because just like everyone else, we were concerned about what was going on in the building. And then, I mean, I watched with the rest of the world when that second plane hit. And I remember the screams by the cameraman that was filming it. And it was terrifying to watch. And then it went from pilot error to we're a country under attack. And then, you know, everything that happened after that. And I watched for as long as I could and then went for a run. And it was on that run that I made that decision that I was going to join the military. And did you talk to, you know, because I, I, I had the exact same feeling in my body or my mind and heart where I, I seriously considered joining. I ended up getting a lot of advice from a few people who had been in the military. Mm-hmm. Did you reach out to anybody like that or it was just done? That was it. It was just done. Yeah. I, you know, I'll, I'll admit something that I did on that run. I, you know, was out, you know, I don't know how many miles I was out. And then there was a gas station and everyone was getting gas. Everyone was worried about gas prices going up and how it was going to affect oil. And I walked into this gas station and looking back, it was a long time ago. The guy was probably, you know, I don't know what his domination was, uh, but he wasn't, you know, uh, someone that was born here in America. And I made a, I got, you know, a Gatorade. I walked into the counter and I was like, well, this is good for business. And it was a horrible joke. And I was just, you know, I'm, I come from a family of people that in awkward situations will say something <laughs> ignorant. <laughs> and I did. And he looked at me and, and with like, he was angry. He said, this isn't good for business because this is, this is a man that was probably, you know, from the Middle East. And he knew this was going to look negative on him. And I realized what I said. And I looked at him and I thought, man, and, and I kept that in my mind years later uh, after deploying and everything that happened because I've seen some negativity that Middle, East, Middle Eastern people have taken that had nothing to do with 9-11. And I remember when I said that, I was so embarrassed and angry that I said it. Uh, and I never forgot it. And I, like when I, say, like I, don't, I don't share that story with a lot of people because it is very embarrassing. But I remember it was something that really impacted me and how I treat people and the things I say, because we're all connected one way or another. And then when something happens and it's a, you know, we want to stereotype or group people together, you know, it can, it can affect other people. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that story. And you, um, you heard it here first here, folks. So, no, I kind of threw this in last minute because you just posted it less than a day ago, but you posted that you found the house that you lived in when you were 17 on Google Earth. Um, yeah. You said you've come a long way from there. Um, is that the house like you took a run from or were you out in Birmingham when you... No, when you that's, yeah, that's, that's where I lived. Um, that, so that house, I, I already was living on my own by 17. So that was the first place I had that I got in myself and it was a one bedroom apartment above an old garage that someone okay. had made. And it was, I, I never turned the gas on. So I would heat the house by opening my oven and turning it on. And it was, that's how small the place was. It would heat the entire house. Now the, the, you living on your own at 17, was that kind of a forced decision or was that your own, your own? That was my own decision. I, you know, I like, I, yeah, I'm very close with my parents and my three sisters and I got, like, I just, I was, I was that child that was always trying to do my own thing anyway. So I, I moved out. My parents moved to North Alabama 
and I didn't want to go and I had a job. So I just stayed and didn't have, a, I kind of bounced around some friends' houses for a while and then got that apartment. And I lived there until 2001 when 9-11 happened. Okay. Yeah. So, so let's jump back into that. So you, you, you took us through the first deployment. So now, and then you were starting to tell us about the second deployment. Go, go on with that, please. So, you know, after that first deployment is when I decided this was a career for me. I was going to either retire an old man in the military or die in combat. And I was fine with either one of those. And my second deployment to Iraq, they put us in the triangle of death. And it was an area southwest of Baghdad and the Sunni Triangle that had earned its name. Every unit that had been there had taken a beating, and we were no different. We lost a lot of guys on that deployment. And, and, and Noah, can you explain for? Because I think you know, being not being in the military, like yeah. the the impression of whatever happens overseas is just what we see in the the national media, right? So can you explain like the complications that go on in like the Sunni triangle outside of us military forces and why that makes it such a dangerous area? Well, I mean, so we were in an area that we were cutting the supply route out of where they were running ammunition and weapons to Baghdad to fight. So it was the enemy. That's how they were getting supplies to fight whether it was us, the U.S. forces, or to try to gain control of the area. Because, you know, the Sunni and the Shiites were constantly fighting, and then you had other countries involved that wanted to, they wanted to control Baghdad. They wanted Iraq. I mean, it was the third largest producer of oil, and every country surrounding Iraq wanted it. And right. so a lot of that was coming. So we were in an area that was extremely dangerous, uh, a lot of enemy that was not, you know, because you'd be in certain areas of Iraq and, you know, there are people just trying to live their lives, you know, and if they were under the control of a tyrant or something else, like that was, that was difficult. But most people, just like in America, are just trying to live their lives. Uh, but then you have those extremists that wanted to fight or people coming from other countries. So we were in an area that was a high traffic area that if you were cutting off that supply line, that upset the enemy. So that's where they were bringing the, they were just one of several areas that they were bringing in a fight. And so because of that, um, we took, we, we took a lot of hits and then, you know, that particular deployment, there was some poor leadership that was involved that went up the chain of command that affected a lot of different things. It was, it was a very stressful deployment. Uh, we had a lot of guys that really started to struggle with what was going on. There wasn't a lot of information that was going. We were just, we felt like it got to where we felt like we were just waiting on our turn to die. And wow. that will, and then, that I will, guess imagination's worse than reality at that point mentally. Yes. Yes. Got and it. I mean, there, after, so, well, about two months into it, Two or three months into it, uh, December 19th of 2005, we were in an area that was a lot of farmland, and which can be very tough to be in because then they were more likely to put explosives and roadside bombs in different places because it wasn't going to affect the local community. Uh, so that's what made it extremely dangerous. And I was driving a Humvee one night uh, with a couple of guys, and it was late at night, we drove with our headlights off, 
night vision goggles on so it didn't give away your position because a lot of times what they would do with these roadside bombs is they would set the bomb, run a wire, and they'd lay in the bushes with the trigger. And they'd wait for you to drive by, and they'd detonate it. And we caught on to that, and we would just start shooting up whatever side the explosion came from. And then they started using Motorola pagers. So they could be across the street, up in a building, wherever. Well, a company designed an antenna that went on all the Humvees that would scramble the signal. So a lot of times explosions would go off just in front of or just behind you because they were trying to detonate it and that signal was scrambled. Well, this night that I was driving, night vision goggles on, you can see well, but you can't see everything. What I didn't see that night was a tripwire stretched across the road. So, you know, in their defense, we were beating them with technology. They took a step back and that was that became effective at the so when my front tires hit it and it detonated this roadside bomb it hit my door and threw this nine thousand pound armored humvee flying through the air and it landed in a canal running adjacent to the road and thankfully it landed wheels down because i was not completely unconscious they said the water was up to my chest my arm was already taken off my jaw was shattered my buddies thought i was already dead as they tried to scramble to get out of the vehicle, out of the water, up the embankment. And it, then they oh go ahead. No, no, I wanna I wanna make sure I, I, I cover this. Like I want to get help the audience get in your mindset. So before you got in the home V that night, are do you go out were you going out every night um thinking this could something like that could happen? Oh yeah. I mean it was it was, you know, you were prepared for it. Uh this particular night though there wasn't anything important going on. We just had some guys we were just on pickup because we, we, the platoon kind of split up in different directions. The platoon is made up about 30 men. And the area we're in was too big for our company size element. And we were stretched out. So, like, we were running two missions at one time with 30 guys. And wow. the, so we were going to pick up the other half. And it was just not really a mission. It was just going to get them and coming back. And that's when I got hit. Well, yeah, and so I, I don't, I don't mean this to sound as casual as it's going to come out, but like, you know, every day somebody goes to work, right? They're going through the routine of getting in their car and going from A to B, right? And anything can mm-hmm. happen. Obviously, your situation is much more extreme. Had you been on like thirty of these trips where nothing happened, and you started to like get comfortable, or was it always like your your hairs are on your back, ready to roll? When well, you so the first deployment complacency was much easier okay this deployment not so much i mean it was always this what's going to happen you know what i mean what are we going to run into what are we going to hit uh because there was a lot of times we would just barely miss a roadside bomb or one would hit some friends of ours you know or it would destroy a humvee but everybody would be okay And this was before they came out. After my deployment, they started making vehicles that were shaped differently, built differently. You know, these MRAPs and things, these really big vehicles that you hear about that took the explosions much better. It was before all of that. Uh, So it became... the the night you got hit, you how many how many people were on the Humvee in the Humvee with you at the time? So there were three of us. There was me driving. My platoon leader was in the passenger seat, and we had a gunner. And that earlier that day, we did our own missions, and we finished 
before the other group. So we headed back. We lived out of an old potato factory. And when we got back, I laid down on a cot to get some sleep because, I mean, if you live in a combat zone, you never know if the enemy is going to attack. And if they do, it could drag on. So if you get a chance to rest, you take it. And I actually didn't even have to be in the Humvee that night. My platoon leader woke me up and said, hey, we're going to take the Humvees to pick up the rest of the guys. There's nothing important. We're just going and coming back. And I told him, I said, if y'all go and I don't and something bad happens, I'll never forgive myself. So I said, I'm going and driving the lead vehicle. And, you know, then I ended up being the one that was severely injured because the other two guys in the vehicle had some injuries, but not as severe as mine. And that was one thing that, not to jump ahead too far, I'll come back, but as, as I was going through my depression, that was one thing that kept me going because, you know, sometimes we end up in moments in our life where we say, why them, why not me? I got that opportunity. And I would remind myself when I was struggling that, you know what, this happened to me. I'm glad it didn't happen to anyone else. I'm going to make something of it. And that was a little something that motivated me, but it took me a while. I'll back up and talk more about the struggles with that. But that was one spark of hope that I had reminding myself that I made the right decision to be there that night. Yeah. So, um, so Noah, we're coming up here on, on Christmas day. So we, it was the the 19th of December when, when that happened. Um, and you were, were unconscious essentially or in a, in a coma, Mm -hmm. um, until Christmas day. Um, when you went, you woke up in Walter Reed, um, did your, was your mom right there when you woke up? She was. So I woke, I, I woke up briefly in Germany on Christmas Eve, but it's, it's still like, it was like a dream. I didn't know where I was, how I got there, what was wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was very confused and I was kind of in and out of it. They had me heavily sedated. And then I went to sleep and woke up and I was at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in DC. And I woke up as my parents were walking in. Wow. And because it was late at night, no one was there. Usually the parents or the family are prepped and we just all happen to get there around the same time Mm -hmm. and they come walking in. And I remember when I saw my mom's face, something in the back of my mind said, smile so she knows you're okay. And I don't know why I thought that because I didn't know what condition I was in. Uh, My mom was the one who told me that I'd lost my left leg above the knee, my left arm above the elbow. I had severe injuries to my right leg. So there wasn't any feeling at the time in my right leg. Injuries to my right hand. My jaw was shattered. So my mouth was wired shut because they'd reconstructed it. And I mean, as she told me all that, I remember thinking, what in the world? Like, what am I going to do now? Who am I? You know, like I lost my identity. you You know, I mentioned that, you know, I went in the military because of 9-11 because I love my country. But once I got in, I fell in love with the military and I accepted death or retiring as an old age. I never prepared for the in-between, you know, getting injured, being taken out early and still alive. And I struggled with that for a long time. And the emotions I went through in the hospital were so dramatic. I mean, I'd go from one minute saying, this is okay. I'll be fine. You know, to the next minute, angry, you know, just yelling at everybody and the next minute crying like a baby, like I've never cried before. I mean, it was just the emotions were insane. No, or were the, were the emotions more uh, a product of like you, you felt incomplete because you weren't out there with your team or? Yes. You know, you know I'll tell you what, 
you know, I, as I described to y'all, being in a place that death felt like it was right around the corner sounds terrifying, but I was more scared being in the hospital, not knowing what I was doing now and knowing where my men were and I wasn't there with them. That was, I, I didn't know how bad my family had it when I was deployed. You know, being home and not knowing anything is absolutely terrifying. And those men are my family. And I sat in that hospital and wanted to know everything that happened. I reached out to uh, wives, uh, you know, the groups of wives and stuff. And I told them, I said, if anything happens, let me know, you know, as soon as it does. Uh, because we still had men dying. We still had men getting injured. And I just was in that hospital bed, not able to do anything. And it was it was miserable. The only way that we can relate, I guess, is being um, on on a team. And um, yes. you know, we're it's it's the beginning of December, and we're closing in kind of on um, the anniversary of all of this. So, how do you look at it? You know, what's your you're in a very obviously a very good place today, which did <laughs> did not happen overnight. So, um, I have I've followed your story for a long time, so I, I know I know some of the the background struggles and things, but. Um, by the time you, when you did come home, um, what were some of the challenges that you were having and how did, how did you get out of that mental space? Well, I think the biggest thing I dealt with, uh, as I, I, I went through depression, <clears throat> excuse me, I went through depression, which was very typical. Um, but what I sat in the most was in denial. I didn't want to accept that I was um, struggling and didn't know who I was. And I didn't want to talk about it with anybody. I didn't share it with family or friends. I didn't go to mental health. I didn't take care of myself. I thought I can deal with this. But instead of dealing with it and going about my merry way, I was an unhappy person. I was not taking care of myself. I was, you know, I quit all the medication thinking that I was stronger than that and started self-medicating with alcohol and just eating like crap and going out all night. And, um, at the time, I had three young kids, and I was not being a very good father, wasn't a very good husband. I went through a second divorce because of it, and obviously, I am in a different place now, and, and people have always asked me, what was, what was that turning point? What was that aha moment? And I always tell people, life is not a movie. Things don't fix overnight, but I did have and continue to have one constant in my life that was my motivation. That's my three kids. And one day I walked into the living room and my three kids were all on the couch watching TV. And I realized to my two boys, I'm showing them what a man is. And that's what they're going to grow up to be one day. And to my little girl, I'm showing her how a man's supposed to act. And that's what she's going to look for one day. And that scared me more than anything. And because who I was, I didn't want my boys to be. And I definitely didn't want my daughter to grow up to, to look for so I knew I needed to make a change. I still made mistakes after that, but every time I screwed up, every time I fell flat on my face, it was a thought of my three kids that was the motivation to get up and, and push a little harder, go a little further. And things just got better and better. I started eating better, taking care of myself, got back into fitness, you know, had more energy, became a better father, and just started really pushing myself. And I started running races, off course races, marathons, and I started gaining attention. And that's when things started to look up. And that's when I was first able to look back at where I'd come from and saw how dark a place I was in. Because when I was in that hole, I didn't know how deep I was in it. 
until I came out of it. And yeah, you since can't then, see it when you're in the bottle. Yes, sure. exactly. And since um, then, I, I, I've become a huge, you know, I love to push mental health and people getting help because you never know how bad you've got it until you go and talk to somebody. And uh, Noah, you, you, you said, well, you didn't say it, you have three kids. Um, <laughs> did, you had the kids before you were deployed or is kind of like off and on? So my oldest son was born uh, January of 2005. I was injured mm-hmm. December of 2005. So he was just coming up on a year old um, when I was injured. And the, my second two children, so my oldest, Colston, and then my son, Jack, and my daughter, Ryan, were born after my injury. Okay. Got it. Um, and you know, one of the, uh, there might be people listening and wondering like what this has to do with orange theory. And <laughs> you started, <laughs> you started to hit on it. And, uh, you know, the reason I, I don't really know how I came maybe Rhea shared it, but I saw the picture of you on the water rower, um, with, uh, using, uh, the prosthetic leg and, and arm, and then basically orange theory is one part of your regiment of some of the races you do. Is, is that correct? Yeah. So I, you know, before, even before the military, I got into fitness at a really young age, about okay. 12 years old. I got into fitness. It was actually of all people. Uh, I don't know how old y'all are. Um, ever heard the name Tony little? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was my motivation to get into business really? a long time ago. You want a ponytail too? <laughs> yes, because, well, my older sister is seven years older than me. And when she was in high school, she had some Tony Little tapes, you know, VHS tapes. And I started getting up early in the morning when everyone was asleep. And I'd go in the living room and put in these Tony Little tapes and I'd start working out. And so I, then I came obsessed with fitness. So then I wanted to learn everything about fitness. So Fast forward, now I'm injured, I'm getting back into fitness, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to work out with one arm and one leg. There was no books, magazines, nothing on the internet that explained it, so I had to teach myself. Well, then I kept reading and researching. Well, I started reading about this gym in Florida that is heart rate-based, and you know, it's uh, high-intensity interval training, basically, is just, and I love the concept. It wasn't what, anywhere. No, about what time frame was this when you started reading about? Oh orange man, I—I I mean, this is when Orange Theory was only in Florida. It wasn't a national thing. So it had to be like what eleven or two thousand eleven ish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, the reason I, the, the reason I'm asking is because there might be people out there thinking like, well, why didn't you just look it up on YouTube or something? And like in two thousand five, YouTube was only a year old. Yeah, um, no, yeah. There was so, nothing. Yeah, so I just kind of want to give people some perspective. I'm glad you did. Yes. You had to actually physically probably go look at books or get a referral or recommendation. Like there wasn't just you could go Google and get YouTube. Nope. I I joined a 24-hour gym and would go at 2 o'clock in the morning when nobody was there so I could just tinker with the weights, figure out what works. And I did. You know what I mean? I figured out how to work my left side, my right side. Uh, And then, like I said, you know, I'm I'm still researching things because I just love fitness. And I read Ellen's story and what was going on, and I just absolutely loved it. And then years after that, they finally opened up in Alabama. And I went, said, you know what, I'm going to try this out. And I just did one of those free classes. And after the class, I was like, done, I'm sold. And I got a membership, and that became my obsession. I was going seven days a week, and I would use it. I ran a marathon 
just doing Orange Theory. I also oh. did a 24-hour race. And to lead up to that preparation, one day I did uh, – did we lose anybody? Uh, no. I um, You have a very similar story, at least from the training for Amer- – using Orange Theory to train for a marathon. So did Trey. Trey did that too. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trey's a big believer in everything that – well, Trey, you, you, you talk about about why you do Orange Theory because you think it could be it should be used applicable in, in outside situations. I agree. So when it comes to Orange Theory Fitness, um, I ran my first marathon, Noah, in March. And the longest I had ever ran was a half marathon. Um, but I just applied the things that you learn in Orange Theory Fitness. So there was push pace, and then when you get tired, you just take it down to a base pace. Mm-hmm. And so I just used that uh, to complete the marathon. And then I am also a believer of seven days a week. That's not for everyone, but I love to go seven days a week. And then um, the 24-hour race. So you're referring to Ragnar? No, I did uh, the World's Toughest Mutter. Oh, and so okay, it's okay, a, okay. It's a 24-hour constant loop of a five-mile track with obstacles and leading up to it i decided you know what well i'm gonna do every class in one day and i showed up with things to eat in between you know because i was using it as you know i wanted to make if i was like because everyone was like what are you crazy i was like well if i can't do this i'm not gonna survive this 24-hour race so you did 10 classes in one day i did and i made sure it worked or that heart rate monitor to make sure everyone saw right. that I was maxing out. And now was it wasn't it during your, Hell Week. Was it a Hell Week? <laughs> I don't know when it was. I, I may have to look <laughs> back and see. Um, I found out that one time they told me like it was they were doing a competition on uh, Meters Road, uh-huh. and yeah. they wouldn't let me add all mine up. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, well, that's not really fair. And I agreed with them. <laughs> um, but it, was, it, it wasn't that bad until that break. You know, I know there's – I've seen uh, some Orange Theory gyms, especially ones near a university that have different times. They'll have a lot of classes in the afternoon. But your typical Orange Theory, most gyms are dead uh, after the lunch hour. So there's no classes. So I had this break between the 1130 class and the 4 o'clock class. And I ran by a friend's house, and she let me take a nap on her bed. And that was the biggest mistake I made because that 4 o'clock class, I came in looking angry. <laughs> I was not happy <laughs> because taking that nap, I slept too long. You, you don't yeah. want to hit that REM sleep. Yeah. And I did. Yeah. And, oh, man. But then it, it kind of I coasted through to the last class and then slept well that night. So then how'd you do in the race? How did the training? I did great. It went great. It went really good. Um, Like I said, you know, talking about Orange Theory and how it compares to everyday life, what I love about Orange Theory and what I tell people all the time, you know, I don't knock other way classes are done or whether everyone has a way of working out. You should think about where you want to be in life. Hey, if you want to be a CrossFit athlete, well, go do CrossFit. But if you want to be healthy, and you want to take care of yourself, these movements are safe. The coaches are educated. You know, the classes are designed by professionals. Everything is done in a way. What I love to tell people is you can have your grandmother on one treadmill and an athlete on another. They're running at different, they're going at different paces, but they are challenging themselves on getting their heart rate up and getting 
healthier. And that is what I love about Orange Theory is it's, it's, it takes multiple groups of people and then challenges each one of them without anybody getting hurt. It's all it's real health and fitness. And that's what I love about it. I'm going to have to share my interview with my mom and dad because I keep trying to tell them that it doesn't matter how old, how old you are. Um, Trey, you look like you got some competition for uh, pushing yourself. You got to get 10 classes. You know, day, so. I know, I, now you know I was over here strategizing. I'm like, hmm, when can I do this? <laughs> yeah, Trey, Trey will often do two classes um, in a day. And thank goodness because Trey and I actually did um, a Tough mutter together and he used his his uh, weight training at Orange Theory to help hoist me over just basically every obstacle, <laughs> and, and throw me over most of the time. You know, it is it is one of those classes that, I mean, like I can when I get real busy, if I can do three classes a week, I am fine. I am I can push myself. I am still staying fit. I, you know, I'm proving, but then if I have, not everybody has the time or the, the ability to do seven days a week or multiple classes a day, like, you know, he and I can do, but you know, when I don't have time, three days a week is all you need and you yep. the improvements that come from it. That's why I just, I, you know, I've become obsessed with orange theory. Noah. Um, so can you describe for, uh, people who may not be able to, to see the, you know, may forget to look you up. Maybe like, I'd like to you to tell us what the prosthetics look like. And then when you're on the rower, what the apparatus is that you're using that I think water rower manufactured it for you. Well, no, they're working on something right now, right now. So with the rower, I like, I, I have a prosthetic leg that, uh, has that blade that people are very familiar with now that's a running leg. But okay. when I'm on the rower, I don't put my left leg on because it won't hook in. I hook my right foot and I just grab the middle of the handle and I just row with one arm and one leg. Wow. Okay. And um, I take a lot of pride in the fact that I can 380 Watts. Isn't that, that challenging, but I love it because I will look around at who's next to me <laughs> with all their arms and legs <laughs> But my endurance isn't that. But I'm not going to brag too much because I'm very powerful in the beginning. <laughs> but the reason I love Orange Theory is because it'll build, it builds my endurance because my endurance starts dropping and dropping and dropping. Then I'm rowing at 80 meters, 80 watts. <laughs> I'm, I'm so, glad to hear you're human. I'm not the only one creeping on other people's uh, wattage, like checking out to see if I'm doing okay. <laughs> Rhea's always looking at other people's screens. I do. If, if Christian and I go to class together, um, I make him always be at whatever station is to my left so that I can see his, um, his numbers. Well, that's that's he's going, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, that's my, my MO with him. The only time I hate that is when there's a guy next to me that is like, I don't know, like six five, and I am running at my best pace, and I look over and he's walking at the same pace. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm gonna let uh, Rhea and Trey take this next set of questions because I'm definitely out of the the pool of this area. No offense to you, I just haven't been Google googling your men's health cover. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just not how I roll. I'm the it's just not how I roll. Yeah, no, no worries. I have. 
So you were, um, you were the first men's health ultimate guy. Um, Mm -hmm. you have to tell us about that. And then you were also on the cover. You looked amazing. People said that you were Photoshopped, but you definitely were not. Mm -mm. Um, so tell us about being the ultimate guy. Well, you know, I ended up, so when I made the cover, not only was I the, they called the ultimate guy. I was the first veteran and amputee to ever grace the cover of the world's largest men's magazine. Wow. Yeah. And because of my injury and because I was fit, uh, it got a lot of attention. And I mean, men's health got a lot of attention. It was, uh, they got awards from it, but I got a call from Ellen DeGeneres because of it. And wow. when everyone told me you go on Ellen and you are set. <laughs> and I, I didn't dead. know yet what that meant, but after that episode aired, the phone started ringing. Uh, Survivor wanted me. I was excited about it, but we had one phone call because it's X amount of weeks, no contact back home. You get voted off. You stay with the crew, no contact back home. And I said, oh, thanks, wow. but no thanks. Right. I have three kids here in Alabama. They're more important than the television show. Yeah. Another show called An Adventure Racing, and I turned it down. Then Dancing with the Stars called, and I was like, they're like, do you have any dancing experience? I was like, no. And they're like, hey, if you'll do our show, we'll put you in a house in L.A. for the duration of the time you're here. And I was like, I appreciate it. But, you know, I've got three kids here in Alabama and I, I can't go to L.A. for that long. Without hesitation, Dina Katz, the executive producer, said, that's OK. We'll send the dancer to you. You'll rehearse in Alabama and fly back and forth the live show. And I was like, oh, crap. I guess I guess I'll do it. Yeah, like, I didn't really have an argument. Down. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't want yeah. to do it. <laughs> Yeah, I saw an interview with your sister, and they they were like, "Have are you surprised that he's on Dancing with the Stars?" And she's like, uh, "I've never even seen him like move his hips." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't think I'd last long either. I was like, you know what? I'll be there for two weeks, and then I'll go home. And it never seemed to end. <laughs> well, you did amazing, and I have to give a shout out to my friend Cameron, who's your number one fan. She voted for you every yeah. week. She's super jealous of this interview right now, um, but she voted for you the whole the whole time. Well, you tell Cameron thank you because here's every time I meet someone that says that they voted for me, and I say thank you. I don't think they understand how much I appreciate them because I joke and say the show wouldn't end because I end up doing all ten weeks, came in third place. But I realized halfway through the season, the people that started reaching out to me, veterans, injured veterans, people with disabilities, or people without disabilities that just feel like they should start pushing themselves harder. And I realized that it had become bigger than me. And I didn't know how long I'd last, but I wanted to push myself each week. I was not the best dancer on that show. Best looking shirtless? Yes. But I was not the best. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> but I it becomes something that when I tell people, <laughs> when I tell people that I appreciate them voting for me, that every week that I was on that show, more people heard my story, and because of that, my life now, my life and my children's lives have improved dramatically. And I've been able to parlay that into having my own business and doing all these other things. And it's because of people like Cameron that that is possible. Yeah, that that's awesome. And, you know, you wonder. Oh, she has gone to pass out. She is going. Yes, I know. Oh, my God. Cameron, I hope you pulled over on the side of the road while you're listening. (laughs) 
And she actually, um, just as, as a side note, she used to work out with another um, men's health cover guy. Um, and when she what? lived in Dubai, yes, her <laughs> fitness instructor. So anyway, you're you're out there. With- <laughs> yeah, that's a very specific fetish. He shoots for the top. She don't, she don't mess too. with people inside the issue. I know. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, I, I did watch you dance and I think that you, I mean, you did amazing. There were some injuries also that you sustained doing dancing with the stars too. I did, you know, so here's the thing. I don't know how to dance. Uh, so, but I, I'm strong. I know how to work out. So like, just like doing it, like I did a lift in one of my dances that with one arm and one leg, I treated Sharna Burgess, my dance partner, like a kettlebell and just hoisted her up. Well, because I'd use strength, I didn't, these dancers, you know, a, a male dancer doesn't have to be very big and strong because he knows how to manipulate his body uh-huh. to make things happen. And I don't. So one of the moves, Sharna, I, I don't know how to explain it, but she kind of flips upside down and I bend her body out where her legs kicked out. And I was using my wrist to rotate out and back in. And I did that for several days before someone finally said, don't do that. Do it like this. And I had already, I mean, it put so much stress on my wrist that then I was getting cortisone shots, everything just to get through. And then leading up to the night of the dance where I did the lift, Sharna said, we're going to take it out because we haven't been able to practice it because you're hurt. I said, no, it's important. It'll work. It'll work. Let's do it. And I talked her into it. And that lift is in one of the most viewed dance in the history of Dancing with the Stars. I danced to Toby Keith's American Soldier. At the end of the dance, I got a standing ovation from all the judges and the entire studio audience. And And you got a tweet directly from him. Yes. So, I mean, it was like everything took off. That lift was important. Yeah. No, can you, uh, real quick side note, Trey, you need to figure out how to get on a, a treadmill next to Noah so you can teach him how to dance on the treadmill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I know. I mean, this, you know, I, I can have Noah, you ready. He'll be there at 5 a.m. and I look over in the mirror. He is dancing while he's running at a 10 on the treadmill, like literally dancing. I'm just like, man, I can barely walk straight. Yeah, no, I got to call. If I, if I drift off, I'm afraid I'm going to shoot out the back. <laughs> um, now, I, I, sing a, I sing a lot. I'll break out in song. I always tell people I'm there for the music. Oh, yeah. That's too. A a good playlist. Yes. Nothing beats a good playlist. So, uh, Noah, we're kind of coming close to the end now. And frankly, we could probably do four more hours of this. But um, tell us, tell us, um, I'd like to hear a little bit about your book and and what your business is uh, now, especially that you're getting all this media coverage and everything. The book that I wrote is called Living With No Excuses. And it's, it's a memoir. I talk about my childhood. I talk about how I ended up in the military, being in the military deployments, my injury. And I talk very in depth about my depression. I mean, it's not the book itself isn't a sad book, but I do talk in depth about the mistakes I made. And when I did that, it was hard to relive. And it was terrifying when the book hit the shelf. So I thought people were going to hate me because these people that love me on Dance with the Stars, this, you know, I was, I was a gentleman you know, all this good stuff, they're going to see this side of me that they won't like. But the reason I did it was because when I was going through my depression, I thought I was alone. I didn't think anyone else was feeling what I was feeling. And I came through it. And I want to share that 
because I hope that someone will read it and see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, that they're not alone, or if someone they know is going through it. So I wanted to share that because I thought it was important. And the people that have responded to my book have loved the honesty. I mean, there's an entire chapter dedicated to me spending 10 days in the county jail. And it talks about how I got there and what happened and what came from it. And I thought it was necessary. It was hard, but it was necessary. And I'm glad I did it. And that was one of the kind of turning points for you to kind of um, say, you know what, this, this cop actually arrested me. (laughs) You got it. You got a DUI. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, I think it's interesting. We talk actually a lot about mental health um, and how, you know, for, I work from home, so I don't really have an interaction with people on the, on the regular. And I know that for so many people, the orange, orange theory community is just so strong that Mm -hmm. um, the mental, you know, physical is one thing, but the mental health portion of an orange theory workout is is also important and I think from your book's perspective you definitely were not alone because there is a day now in Alabama called the no excuses day (laughs) yes October 10 28 yeah awesome it has been an you know amazing thing the people that responded to it yeah you know the state of Alabama has done that I've got several cities uh one in Tennessee one in Kentucky Fort Campbell made me a distinguished member of the regiment. I mean, that's a huge honor. And what's yeah. been really interesting is when what I struggled with a lot in my depression, which is, you know, always funny to tell people, missing arm to leg, losing the arm to leg. I mean, obviously that was horrible, but losing my identity and my connection to the military that I fell in love with is what really bothered me. And it's now come full circle to where, I do a lot with the military. I get to go to places and, and speak the troops. I've, you know, after I was injured, I got to go to Iraq. I've been to Afghanistan speaking to the troops. You know, I go speak at military balls or, you know, like the other day I got to speak at a university's veterans association. So it is, you know, it took me a while, but when I realized, okay, I may be out of the military, but I'm still representative and I still have a job. I still have a mission. And it is, you know, number my number one priority is my children and myself. But then I am connected to so many other people that are motivated to push themselves. So I remind myself, I may be missing an arm to leg and I'm pushing myself physically, but it's to motivate others that there is no excuse to just to try to be your healthiest, best self. And then going back to the mental health, I'm that kind of guy. I show up to Orange Theory an hour early. Like, I like to run my mouth. I mean, that's a place to hang out and then boom, get in there and, and work out, high five, because we're transitioning. I mean, I love it. It is absolutely one of those things that... Wait, wait, hold on. No, let me understand something. So, All right. so I'm playing sports, and so I understand the whole talking trash thing, but you're telling me you show up to Orange Theater Studio an hour ahead of time to talk shit to other members? No, I'm not running my mouth. No, I just hang out. <laughs> I'm not. Oh, okay. no, I'm, I'm not. I thought you're like trying to get in people's heads before no, they're getting no, to no, the class. No, I'm like, this dude's no. ridiculous, dedicated. Uh-uh, I'm not that oh, guy. No. I'd be like, I'd be like, no, that. I'd be like, that chick's seventy, man. Maybe you shouldn't be talking so much. Stress. Come on, grandma, go faster. On the treadmill. All right, so, oh, you all you got? so Noah, the last part of this we call all-out Q&A. It's going to be about five to seven questions, and it's meant to be quick answers. Um, Ray, roll. I guess so. I feel like there's a little <laughs> pressure on me now. 
what scares what scares you about getting older? Uh, I think just body breaking down. Uh, I think you've kind of proven you can adapt. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, who, who, who's a mentor that that, that you have? You know, they could be fa- this, they could be famous too. Like no, this is going this is going to sound corny, but I have. I hate to be this guy that goes this, but my three kids, I have an amazing kids and they're so dedicated. They're very, Oh, they'll get mad at me if I'm not getting up to get them to school in time. You know what I mean? Like they are great kids. They push themselves and everything they do uh, in sports in school in life. And they motivate me. You know, they're the ones who got me out of my depression and they're the ones that continue to motivate me and remind me of why I push myself every day. And it's, so it's them. What's your typical OTF studio time? Uh, I go at 11, usually 1130. What happened to I'm in the military? Aren't you supposed to be waking up early, like cutting corners on your bed and stuff like that? Uh, I'm out of the military now. I'm a civilian. Look, while we're doing this interview, I'm sitting in bed right now. Um, I've yet to get out of We call Cameron? <laughs> no, what's your favorite thing to eat or drink that you probably should not be? Oh, Matt, pizza. I am uh, a sucker for pizza. I can't be near it. Do you want to? Do you have a favorite? You want to work on an endorsement deal right now? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> Papa John's. Papa John's. <laughs> call Shaq and see what he's up to. Um, Noah, uh, you're talking trash in Orange Theory Inside. Studio, and you're about to walk Dang. into the studio. What's your intro song? Yeah, so much pressure to talk something real quick. Not, you know, I, I, I do talk all eyes on me. Roll up in the club. All eyes on me. Okay. Uh, if you could write one thing on a billboard in Times Square, what would it be? Be happy. Run, row, or lift, which do you hate? I don't know. It's a tough. It's a tie between rowing and running. Um, <laughs> I, I'm funny. I, I, I struggle with the, I, that's one thing I love about orange theory. I will not run on my own. Uh, so my love hate is running. So that's how I start every class. I love to start on the, the treadmill because I want to get it out of the way and I want to get it. I want to hit it strong. Got it. Yep. What's a blind spot that you had in your twenties that you clearly see now? Uh, in my twenties, I didn't understand how to help those in need without getting emotionally involved with them. And those people will tend to pull you down. And now I'm in a place in my life where I can help others and, and be a little distant so that it, it benefits both of us. Do you, is there a sound or noise that you love? Uh, the sound of my children laughing. What's a profession other than your own that you would like to attempt? You know, I would, I would like to be a teacher. I come from a, uh, two of my sisters are educators and they would love for me to be a teacher. And I love when I get an opportunity to go and speak to schools or go to classes. But if I weren't doing what I'm doing right now, I think I'd, I think I'd like to be a teacher. And last question, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God, Allah, or Tom Cruise say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, can you believe you made it here? <laughs> um, or, this is, or, or this is not a mistake. <laughs> this is not a mistake. <laughs> uh, Noah, if somebody wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, I'm on social media. Uh, I'm on 
Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And the best way to find it is go to noahgalloway.com. And I have, uh, you know, I have a merchandise with shirts and hats, but also all my social media can be tracked from there. And that's how people can find me. Cool. Noah Galloway, thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to join us on the Orange Therapy Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Straight to the depths of hell is where those cowards going. Well, all you still down, nigga, holler when you see me. And let these devils suck for the day they finally freed me. I got a caravan of niggas every time we ride. Hitting motherfuckers up when we pass by. Until I die, live the life of a boss player. Cause even when I'm high, fuck with me and get crossed later. The future's in my eyes. Cause all I want is cash and things. A five double low, bands wanting flashy ranks. Uh, bitches pursue me like a dream. Been known to disappear before your eyes. It's like a dope thing. It seems my main thing was to be major paid. The game sharper than the motherfucking razor blade. Save money, bring bitches. Bitches bring lies. One nigga's getting jealous and motherfuckers die. Depend on me like the first and fifteen. They might hold me for a second, but these folks won't get me. We got four niggas and low riders and ski masks screaming thug like every time they pass. All eyes on me. Little life of Little life is a 
thug nigga until the day I die. Then my life is a false play. All eyes on me. All eyes on me. Pay attention, my niggas. See how that shit go. Nigga walk up in this motherfucker. Be like, ping.